Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry, and today we're picking up our systematic study on ecclesiology, um, part systematic theology three, um, the doctrine of the church. Uh, so we started out last time with a simple introduction, and we're going to continue with our habit of dealing with the lexical aspects of the uh, subject at hand this time it will be the issue of the church as well as some images that the New Testament uses for the church so with that we're, we're going to try to keep it interesting it is what it is I mean terms <laughs> um, so <laughs> be entertained yes we'll we'll try to make it somewhat interesting um, primary terms first of all uh, in the English uh, the term church comes from the I think Scottish word Kirk and the German word, uh, it's K-I-R-C-H-E. And you said you would pronounce that, that what? Kirch? I, I guess. That's what I thought, Kirch or Kirk. But it's apparently, and I'm going to massacre, yeah, I'm going to massacre the German. If you guys want to find out how to do it, look it up on YouTube how to pronounce this. It's Kirsche. Kirsche. Brittany will correct us. Yeah, she will. Uh, she's probably rolling her eyes when she hears it. But <laughs> Kirsche. Anyhow. They're all derived from the Greek word kuriakos, which means belonging to the Lord. Um, its applications, Sosi says, its application to the church stems from its use by early Christians for the place where they met together, denoting it as a place belonging to God or God's house, uh, with realization that the place had significance only, and this is important, only because of the people of God who met in it. The term was applied then to the assembly itself. So now when we get to the Old Testament, yeah, that's just, where did our English word church come from? Yeah, yeah. That's where it came from. Um, in the Old Testament, there's obviously some terms that are going to be used. And the one of the primary ones is kahal. Um, and from the theological workbook of the Old Testament, they say the verb, kahal, conveys the idea of assembling without regard to purpose. So it's a generic yeah, one. It's in just, other words, yeah. Uh, assembly, company, congregation, usually it's translated... Uh, in the Septuagint is ecclesia, um, but in 36 instances, it is uh, synagogue. Uh, where we get synagogue. Where we get synagogue, yeah. So it's just a gathering general term. Yeah, that's key. It's just this general term. Because some people say, oh, ch the word church is used in the Old Testament. And we're like, well, yeah, but not in any technical sense. You know, that's where the, the term kohelet comes from in Ecclesiastes? No. The, uh, oh, that that makes absolutely sense. Vanity Vanity yeah. says Kohelet, the preacher, he's preaching to an assembly. There um, comes from Kahal. So cool. uh, yeah, uh, so from Baker, um, it, it says it is used definitely to refer to a particular meeting at a particular place. It is used indefinitely to refer to a local meeting at a particular place. <laughs> it is used of meetings for wickedness, for politics, for war, and for religion. So again, just a general term. Yeah, wherever guys get together, 
you have one. You have a kahal, yeah. So then you have edah. In the Hebrew, this word is usually translated as congregation. Uh, Rodmacher points out that it is a company assembled together by appointment or acting concertedly. It's used, uh, usage is given variously as referring to people, to the righteous, to evildoers, to animals, such as a swarm of bees, <laughs> to a whole assembly of Israel. And many times it seems to approximate the meaning of kahal. Um, again, from the Theological Workbook of the Old Testament, uh, we have, and at the same time, these two words are used together at times in the Old Testament and are used at times to make a distinction between the community as a whole and a subset of that community, an assembly of officials. At other times, they are used in such a way to indicate that they are synonymous. So because these terms are so broadly used in the Old Testament, there's no reason to try and make them become technical terms in their own right. And that's important. Just they're, they're just a generic term. And it would, I mean, you can just as easily be talking about the assembly of the Israelites or a swarm of bees. In the wilderness, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, uh, in the Septuagint, uh, again, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible uh, or, or Old Testament. The primary background for the New Testament use of the a term ecclesia, as with most New Testament word, uh, is the Old Testament, specifically the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. This is uh, coming from Soci. Specifically, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures in the third century before Christ. Um, the word ecclesia occurs almost a hundred times in the Septuagint and always translated the word, or Hebrew word kahal, or the a word of the same root. Although kahal is also rendered by seven other Greek words, including uh, sunagoge, which indicates its breadth of meaning, uh, ecclesia is the preeminent translation. So again, though, he points out, uh, Rodmacher points out that ecclesia is not a technical term in the Septuagint. Rather, the content of the word ecclesia was determined by its modifiers. This is so common with language. The, the assembly may be religious, political, military, judicial, national, or racial. One thing must be stressed, and that is it always describes a corporeal, a physical unity of people. In other words, one must be physically present in the assembly itself to constitute a member of the ecclesia. If there were some absent that should have been present, they were not members then of the ecclesia at that moment. A mental or spiritual unity is not complicated. Now you can, if you're listening carefully, you can already tell that we're heading somewhere with that. Yeah. Um, that you have to actually be there to be part of that ecclesia of the Old Testament. So the point to take away is that we now, as that as we now look at the New Testament, actually how the term is used, that was not some special Christianized term. Rather, it just represented its normal usage and meaning. It is the context that defines it more than the simple word itself. So how about you just yeah, start? So here, um, yeah, so ecclesia then. Um, are we on New Testament here? Yeah. Yeah. So th this is a, a primary term used to refer to the church in the New Testament, but it has it has different applications within the New Testament. It literally means, if it's going to be a a literal, I guess, rendition of, of the term, uh, ecclesia would mean to call out from, because it's got that preposition right. ek, which means from. So and some ecclesia. people love to make a big deal over that. Yeah. And so the church is, the, be, we are the called out ones, is what they'll conclude. Uh, which is not cor correct necessarily. So uh, here, this comes from Orr, uh, the James Orr. Yeah, the International Standard of Bible Encyclopedia. 
He says, although ecclesia soon became a distinctively Christian word, it has its own pre-Christian history. And to those, whether Jews or Greeks, who first heard it applied to the Christian society, it would come with suggestions of familiar things throughout the Greek world and right down to New Testament times. Ecclesia was the designation of the regular assembly of the whole body of citizens in a free city state called out. Uh, again, ek, which means out, and then kalein, which means to call, um, by, by the herald for the discussion and decision of public business. The Septuagint translators, again, had used the word to render the kahal, which in the Old Testament denotes the congregation or community of Israel, especially in its religious aspects as the people of God. In the Old Testament sense, we find ecclesia employed by Stephen in the book of Acts, where he describes Moses as he that was in the church. Um, That's the revised version. That's yeah. actually how they translate it. Yeah, um, which is congregation, what we get sometimes yeah, in they, the translation. Well, they actually put it in the margin or congregation. Right. But you can see that the revised standard, they were actually trying to maintain that original that idea yeah. that the church actually finds its beginnings in the Old Testament, which we're going to argue against. Yeah. That's a, yeah, like a, that would be a theological interpretation. Uh, so the word thus came into Christian history with associations like for the Greek and the Jew. To the Greek, it would suggest a self-governing democratic society. To the Jew, a theocratic society whose members were the subjects of the heavenly king. Okay, so in other words, both groups had a sense of what the word meant, but it had no deep spiritual, spiritual meaning of, wow, we have been called out by God to be a holy people under the Lord, something like that. It's just a word. It's not a, yeah, no, it's not a distinctively Christian term. Right, right. So uh, in a general sense, then, it's used um, as a gathering of citizens, uh, an assembly or a meeting. What we're going to really do is just go back and forth here and give you various ways the term gets used in the New Testament. So in Acts 19.32, we see, so then there were some were shouting one thing and some another for the assembly, and there's the word, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not for, know for what reason they had come together. So it's just a mob there. Um, this was the common use of the term in secular Greek. Sosi points out that ecclesia refers only to the assembly or meeting and never to the people which compose that assembly. When the people are not assembled, they're not considered as composing an ecclesia. A new ecclesia existed each time people would assemble. So there's a heavy corporate em emphasis there. Yeah, and you actually have to be there. If you want to be part of the ecclesia, the assembly, you have to have assembled. <laughs> huh, okay. it's, not, it's not a state of being. It's an actual activity that you have to take part in. Yeah. Um, then you have as the assembled people of Israel, uh, so Acts 7.38, for example, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. So that's just the Israel when they gathered yeah. um, and assembled together and Moses went up and received the law. Uh, another way it can be used in New Testament um, is the totality of Christians living in one place. So in Acts 8.1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. So it's all of the people who would be part of the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, 
and Samaria, except the apostles. We have additional passages that you can look up. We're not going to read them all. Um, look at the show notes if you want to do even more of a word study on this. Yeah. Another way is in, used in the New Testament is to refer to the local church. Uh, this is the most common use of the word. The vast majority of the 114 times that the term is used, it is speaking of a local assembly. Uh, so an example, 1 Corinthians 4, 17. For this reason, I have sent to you, Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. So there, there's a distinction of churches yeah. in every church. Yeah. So um, here we see a local uh, connotation. And that's the most common. Yeah. Now, having said that, at times, it means the universal body of believers. Uh, so in the New Testament, as we said, the vast majority of occurrences uh, refer to the local church, that is to a local assembly of believing followers of Christ. And so again, First Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, almost every letter starts out with the church in Thessalonica, the church in Th uh, uh, Philippi. There's an exception. Did you know that? Uh, in Galatians, it says the churches in Galatia. Um, I didn't know. Yeah, so apparently they had multiple um, groups. Anyhow, the plural form is used to designate a group of churches in a particular area. But in its most significant deviation from the classical use, uh, usage of ecclesia, it also designates what has come to be known as a church universal. In this sense, the word designates not an actual meeting, but instead refers to the spiritual unity of all believers in Christ even though they're not physically assembled. So believers continue to constitute the church, even when they are dispersed in various localities, like Acts 8 talks about. Um, the universal church represents the aggregate, not of local churches, but of believers in the Lord Jesus. At times, it's difficult to distinguish between the local and universal usages in the New Testament, but the technical use of ecclesia is limited to these two meanings— and does not refer to the many other meanings the word church in contemporary in, of the word church in contemporary English. That comes from Charles Grant. Um, so the ecclesia was therefore all those spiritually united in Christ who is the head of the church. There's no concept of a literal assembly in this sense of ecclesia, nor does the New Testament, as will be seen later, have any organizational structure for the church universal. The unity is that of the Spirit in the body of Christ. That comes from Soci. Uh, so Matthew 16, 18 is where this is seen. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. He's not talking about some local uh, assembly of people, but he's talking about the totality of all who will be his. Um, and the gates of Hades will not overpower. And there's a few other passages that you can see. So that, that's the term, ecclesia. Yeah. Have you have you heard the distinction of um, church militant versus church triumphant? Yeah, I think that comes out of a uh, early Catholic. It is. Yeah, because I think there's also the church penitent. Yeah, probably. Like but they're, they're making a distinction there between the physical church that we see here on earth and those who belong to the church that are in heaven, if you will. Um, all belonging, of course, to that universal sure. church. Um so then let us give you some imagery here, also used to this speak This is of the what church. I like. I like the images. I mean, that word ecclesia, as we've beaten to death, 
it's just a word. Uh, yeah. Um, it has different usages or emphasis, but it's the imagery where we really start. I think the Bible starts to paint a wonderful picture. It colors it in it fills yeah. it out. Yeah. So the first one would just be the phrase people of God. Uh, so first Peter two ten, for instance, says you were once not a people, but now you are God's people. You were shown no mercy, but now you have received mercy. Yeah. So people of God, um, Another one would be the body of Christ, probably the most frequently used metaphor, actually, in the New Testament. Um, so 1 Corinthians 10, 17, censor is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Or Ephesians 4, 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of, the ser of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, Grudem makes a helpful observation regarding the body imagery used by Paul in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians. He says, we should recognize that Paul, in fact, uses two different metaphors of the human body when he speaks of the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, the whole body is taken as a metaphor for the church because Paul speaks of the ear and the eye and the sense of smell. Um, he's talking about giftedness there. In this metaphor, Christ is not viewed as the head joined to the body because the individual members are themselves the individual parts of the head. Christ is in this metaphor, the Lord who is outside of that body that represents the church and is, is the one whom the church serves and worships. But in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 4 and in Colossians 2, Paul uses a different body metaphor to refer to the church. In these passages, Paul says that the Christ that Christ is the head and the church is like the rest of the body. So before, we're like the ear, the eye, we're actually part of the head, but that's actually Christ. But he's using the metaphor differently in 1 Corinthians 12. Here, we're now the body and Christ is the head. Um, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. That's out of uh, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, 15 and 16. We should not confuse these two metaphors, uh, but keep them distinct. In other words, like all uses of language, it's very flexible and Usually error creeps in when you get somebody who grabs a whole one verse and then he locks down things with that one verse and he fails to understand that's just not the nature of language. Sure. So another one would be the bride of Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians eleven twelve, Paul states, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Here it is the same image of a chaste virgin prepared for her groom. Uh, Revelation 19, 17 as well. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The next one would be a favor to mind, the flock. Um, here's one out of Acts 20, 28 and 29. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you and not sparing the flock. Yeah, and then there's just a, a whole bunch of other ones too. So for instance, citizens, Ephesians 2.19, Philippians 3.20. Temple of God, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, and others. Uh, you have the elect, Matthew 24, 22, 2 Timothy 2.10. And then we're going to just kick out these and not even give you the reference. You can look them up on your own. Um, 
the church is referred to as the branches, the olive tree, a field of crops, a building, a pillar and bulwark of truth, strangers and aliens. Yeah. Um, so just here's some implications and cautions with this stuff. Uh, this comes from Grudem. Again, he says, each of the metaphors used for the church can help us to appreciate more of the richness of privilege that God has given us by incorporating us into the church. The fact that the church is like a family should increase our love and fellowship with one another. The thought that the church is like the bride of Christ should stimulate us to strive for greater purity and holiness and also greater love for Christ and submission to him. The image of the church as branches in a vine should cause us to rest in him more fully. The idea of an agricultural crop should encourage us to continue growing in the Christian life and obtaining for ourselves and others the proper spiritual nutrients to grow. The picture of the church as God, uh, God's God, new God, temple, yeah. should increase our awareness of God, God's very presence dwelling in our midst as we meet. The concept of the church as a priesthood should help us to see more clearly the delight of God that he has in the sacrifices of praise and good deeds that we offer to him. The metaphor of the church as a body of Christ should increase our interdependence on one another and our appreciation of the diversity of gifts within the body. And many other applications could be drawn from these and other metaphors for the church listed in scripture. Now, that was a long quote, but I thought it was a good one because it, I think he helps us guard then against um, that tendency to just use the words as words. And we're, we're forgetting that they're, they're painting a picture mm -hmm. and that they should ev evoke in us a sense of why, why did he choose that one and, and not this one? Um, so you have these wide range. Uh, we're going to read a little bit more of Grudem. Uh, the wide range of metaphors used for the church in the New Testament should remind us then not to focus exclusively on any one. For example, while it's true that the church is the body of Christ, we must remember that this is only one metaphor among many. So if we ex focus exclusively on that metaphor, we will likely uh, we will be likely to forget that Christ is our Lord reigning in heaven as well as the one who dwells amongst us. Uh, certainly, we should not agree to the Roman Catholic view that the church is the continuing incarnation of the Son of God on earth today. The church is not the Son of God in the flesh, for Christ rose in his human body. He ascended in his human body into heaven, and he now reigns as the incarnate Christ in heaven, one who is clearly distinct from the church here on earth. Yeah, that's a good quote. So there is some of the imagery in the terms that would be key to this subject of ecclesiology. In the next episode, we're going to continue to expand on this critical point of theology. But until then, make sure to tune in, join this conversation. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the church. And don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tell a friend. <laughs>